0: We are haunted in America by our history of racial inequality. I think that our history of lynching casts a shadow over the modern death penalty. The Supreme Court was urged today to strike down the death penalty because it is applied unequally to black and white. The courts said a certain amount of bias is inevitable. So we set up this project to provide legal services to poor people incarcerated people i think it's important that we understand all the ugly details because those are the things that actually give rise to what might allow us to one day claim something really beautiful
1: That was a clip from the documentary, True Justice, Brian Stevenson's fight for equality. It was produced by Coonhart Films with Trey Ellis as executive producer. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Trey Ellis has a resume most writers only dream of. He is, in no particular order, a novelist, essayist, playwright, filmmaker, and professor of screenwriting at Columbia University. His novels include Platitudes, Home Repairs, and Right Here, Right Now, which won the American Book Award. One of the original bloggers for the Huffington Post, Trey has contributed essays to pretty much every major national publication, like The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. He's written screenplays for Paramount, Sony, and Touchstone Pictures. And he was nominated for an Emmy for writing the HBO film The Tuskegee Airmen. Meanwhile, his first play, Fly, is still performed in theaters around the country, including Ford's Theater in D.C. and The New Victory in New York. Yet as extensive as Trey Ellis' resume is, he had never been involved with documentaries, until he began working with Peter Coonhart on the award-winning film *King in the Wilderness*, and then again with Peter on *True Justice*, Brian Stevenson's fight for equality, Trey explains how he and Peter Coonhart began to work together.
0: Yeah, it was really um, lucky for me, unlucky for Peter. Peter was, uh, you know, is a legendary documentarian. has made dozens of films, been nominated for, and won several Emmys. He was having back surgery, so he couldn't go out and and travel the country and interview all these amazing people, the last living people that knew Dr. King, like Andrew Young and Harry Belafonte, all these people. So through uh, our mutual friend and um, Professor Henry Louis Gates, Skip Gates, suggested that he talk to me and he said, would you be interested? And I'd never worked in documentaries before, but of course I said, yes, of course, it'd be fun. So it, it really has changed my life. It was about two and a half years ago that we started that project. So, I traveled the country talking to these amazing people, Joan Baez, and the idea of crafting a story, a true story was just amazing to me. And to be able to sit down for you know two, sometimes four hours at a time, looking in the eye of these heroes of mine, these superheroes, was really the adventure of a lifetime.
1: You talked to people who changed our lives, right literally. And uh,
0: then after that, then after the after that was done, it was really interesting for me to bring my filmmaking narrative sense to crafting both of these films. And they were really open to that to figure out how do you tell a compelling story out of the truth?
1: I have a number of questions. And and the first is we know so much about Dr. King. I understand what the appeal is, but what was also the deeper appeal of the story that Peter Coonhart wanted to tell?
0: Well, I think uh, from the beginning when they came to me, uh, when they said they wanted to do a documentary about Dr. Martin Luther King to sort of pegged to this 50th anniversary of his assassination, I was reticent because I I didn't, I thought there would be another kind of hagiography. But when I said to them, what I'm interested in are these later years in his life when he was forsaken by the black world and the white world, a lot of blacks, more radical blacks, including my own mom, uh, thought that he had become too uh, conciliatory and whites saw him as a commie agitator. I thought that's really interesting. And he agreed, and before me, he had just started talking to Taylor Branch, the great historian of King and the, and the movement. So all three of us independently came up with this idea that that's where we were gonna focus. That's why, and then that's why I, I came up with the title, King in the Wilderness, this idea of him after he had done his great, great works.
1: What surprised you during the making of this film?
0: What most surprised me about Dr. King is how funny everyone said he was. You know, some even Belafonte would say he could have been a stand-up comedian or an actor in a different world. Um, not just the charisma, but really like a biting sense of humor. Andy Young has these amazing stories about how he was just so witty and on and light on his feet in that way. And we have a lot of the footage of him not on a podium talking, and that really comes through in this in the film as well.
1: I have to say, the thing I think that surprised me was his father. I knew his father was this. Figure, but I did not quite realize how large and looming that shadow was.
0: I knew a a bit about the dad, and I'd studied with with, uh, Clay Carson, who at Stanford, who uh, is a curator of the King Papers. So I I knew a fair amount about King already. But what I had never seen was that footage that our Jill Cowan, our archivist, who's really a genius, she discovered that footage of Daddy King at the open casket collapsing and wailing. And almost everybody, when they see that, they just they, they lose it themselves. It's really an amazing moment.
1: Yeah, it certainly is. So this was your first documentary. What what appealed to you as you were doing it? What felt compelling, not just about Dr. King, but about the whole genre of doc making?
0: Well, I'd flirted with documentary making a bit before. Um, Stacy Peralta, who did the documentary Dogtown and Z-Boys about the Venice surf culture, uh, I would worked with him on a documentary about the black gangs of, of Los Angeles briefly. And I've been teaching here at Columbia University f- uh, filmmaking for about 12 years. So it's, it's made me think about storytelling because I have to teach it more than just do it. And I like to say all the time that storytelling is storytelling. My first prejudices when I began is I, I thought novels writing novels was better than film, which is better than television and documentaries or someplace else right <laughs> And now I you know I, I just look back at that young me and think he was an idiot. So now I, I'm super genre agnostic. So what appealed to me was a that it was going to be done the the idea of production I started directing myself so the idea of getting out there and filming and eliciting a performance out of someone, even if they're real people, was really interesting to me. So um, let's say uh, Dorothy Cotton, who is one of Dr. King's closest advisors, she was very ailing, she was in a, an old folks home. She had some dementia, or a considerable amount of dementia, so she would repeat herself a lot. But I knew from uh, my friend and writer on the project, Chris Strong, had done research, I knew that she loved to sing. So she was not so lucid in some of her questions, but I said, hey, uh, I, I heard someplace that you sang with Dr. King a lot. And she just lit up and started singing. And I just saw this other side of her, and we captured that on film that
1: I'm, I'm really proud of. Yeah, it was a lovely moment. You have the kind of resume most people would open their veins for. Screenwriter, filmmaker, playwright, novelist, essayist, professor... You obviously like telling stories. When did you work out that that's what you wanted to do, that you wanted to write in in various genres?
0: Yeah, I think I've always wanted to be a writer. My, my mom, she was going to law school before she died, but she was also, I wanted to be a playwright. I was just, I lived in a house full of storytelling. And then, you know, I, I also think that I'm lazy and don't like bosses. So the idea of being my own boss really appealed to me. So from an early age, I also had this notion of living on a boat uh, with a typewriter on the deck and a, and a beautiful wife who would serve me martinis. This is in fourth or fifth grade. <laughs> I didn't know what a martini was, but I just knew that that's, that that's what I thought a writer's life was like. So I thought that would be fun.
1: But here's the question I have, because you do operate in so many genres. How do you know or how do you work out if an idea or story is going to be best served by the written word or seeing it on stage or seeing it in film?
0: yeah, that's that's a great question. I, I like I like the idea first. I look at the idea, and then I, I try to judge through my experience, I try to judge. For example, this piece that I've been working on for a long time about the rise and fall of the Amos and Andy TV show began as a uh, an HBO film. Then it's migrated to the proposal to making it a sort of the first of a limited series television ser- series. And now I'm um, converted that into a play, a big Broadway play. You have to be flexible. You have to think about what best serves the story and then also think about, in the long
1: run, what's gonna get it made. Well, let's turn to the second documentary you made with the Coonhearts, True Justice, Brian Stevenson's Fight for Equality. Remind us who Brian Stevenson is because many people don't know him. Right, well, while we were working on, on the film
0: about Dr. Martin Luther King, the there it's a family affair, but one of the brothers runs the Gordon Parks Foundation, and they have this big gala, and they invite all these black luminaries to come give talks on social justice, and one of them was Brian Stevenson. So he gave this talk at this black-tie gala and got us all on our feet, and it was like, it's like seeing Clarence Darrow come to life. just one of the most amazing speakers ever. And all of us said, wow, we should make a film about his life. He was just in the process of about to begin building this memorial to lynching, and this museum to contextualize lynching. So we thought this would be a great moment. And we did not realize that so many people over the years have been begging Brian to do a documentary. He was very, very reticent about it. He's been working sort of under the radar for years and he was just starting to come out. He'd won a MacArthur years ago but still was not a household name. Even when we started filming, his book Just Mercy was a bestseller but still people vaguely knew of this guy now in theaters is the film version of his life story starring Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx, and he's much better known. But we knew, and he kind of understood that, that he could sort of have his pick of the documentarians coming towards him. So being the shrewd lawyer that he was, uh, they had a hole in their, in their museum. They had a, he had a crazy deadline uh, that there was almost no way they were going to make, and they had one film that they had to make about the domestic slave trade. And he said to HBO, well, if you make this film for us, I'll agree to do this documentary. So his ask was fantastic for me because I wrote this short film that I'm incredibly proud of and was lucky enough to be able to co-direct it uh, with Chris Schwang, my first uh, film. And it's a film now that's in the permanent collection of their museum.
1: And the name of it?
0: It's called The Domestic Slave Trade There. At film festivals, called, it's called What the Wind Carries. Brian, not only is he a legendary death row attorney, He realized that that getting people off death row one at a time was not enough, that he had to educate the DAs and the jurors in the South to the real history of the South. Because, as he says, the South might have lost the Civil War, but they won the narrative war. So you'll, you'll have these situations where often the black defendant is the only black person in the court. So he realized that one at a time, I cannot try to get these people off or getting just sentences for these people in this such an unjust system. I need to actually work to change the narrative of the South, which led him to add to his already 20-hour days and create this amazing museum to the history of lynching. So he sent his own attorneys, these death row attorneys, in their spare time, which they really don't have. They started researching for years and documenting every case of this horrific racial violence. And then they compiled them into these, into these pamphlets. When he first met them, they had just these pamphlets that they would give out to schools in Alabama. And he realized that wasn't enough either. He wanted to do something bigger, so he had this grand idea of building this memorial. And not in DC, where many more people could come see it, but build it in Montgomery, in the heart of the South, right where he worked. So the documentary is about his legal work and also about the building of this amazing museum and memorial. In the year and a half, uh, half a million people have come to see it. He built it and they came. It's like Field of Dreams. It's just the most amazing thing. The opening ceremony had everyone from John Lewis to Ava DuVernay. Everybody was there. It was just the most amazing thing that he has this sort of almost magical ability to attract the best people.
1: You know, when I saw the film, I was surprised that it went off in the direction of the museum, even though he absolutely states in the beginning the South won the narrative and how important it was claiming it. But at the same time, I thought it was, it was really going to just focus on his legal work. The museum, far from being a left turn, was really so extraordinary. I've had dreams about that museum.
0: It's incredibly moving, especially for me as somebody, I, to go there at first when there was just a hole in the ground that turns into this museum to watch it blossom, and then just now they're opening new restaurants. I mean, really, that that memorial and his work there has single-handedly revitalized
1: the city of Montgomery. Well, the film traces his trajectory and shows us how his thinking evolved. You know, from the beginning, what he does is legal work,
0: and he says, "I'm I'm a Harvard Law School trained guy. I'm going to come to the." deep south and just fight one by one. He realizes he can't, that's not going to work. He has this idea of like even putting up markers. There are all these markers to the Confederacy. He said, let's put a marker up in front of our very building, which happened, to, it was a, at a slave warehouse. Let's put a marker up there. He has to fight with the Alabama Historical Society to say this is what happened in this place. But he does that. Then he has this idea of after he documents the, the lynchings, to go to all of these lynching sites and to to recover earth from these places and put them in these really haunting jars. When I first met Brian in his office, he has this wall of jars that used to be in their conference room. So you saw the power. So the idea of broadcast that kind of power to everybody who comes to the museum is a, is important. Each marker, each project, each film is sort of an antenna radiating out this legacy of, of racial separation.
1: You know, what's so interesting is It's such a simple idea, these clear jars of earth on shelves. But to see that in that film and to see the different colors, the different textures, the power of that. If somebody had said, oh, this is so powerful and described it, I'd just nod my head and say, yes, I'm sure it is. But unbelievably powerful.
0: Yeah, You can't help but think of the different colors in the earth as being the cremated remains of these people. Exactly. The first time we we go down there just to talk to him, just try to sweet talk him into please agreeing to let us do this film. We're ushered into this room and my last name is Ellis and my people before Dayton, Ohio, where a lot of them were from, were from Selma, Alabama. So uh, I told Brian that and he looks on the wall and he finds there's an Ellis from Selma, Alabama in the same county who was lynched in the the earth from from the site of where he was assaulted and murdered right there. Yeah, it's just, it's been really life-changing for me.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can see how it would be. So with Dr. King, you're making a documentary about a man we feel we know, whether we do or not. With Brian Stevenson, you're making a documentary about a man who many of us don't know. Can you explain how that changed your approach to the film, how you approach the interviews and so on?
0: Right, they're almost the opposite films. In the King film, since our subject was not there, we, in a Rashomon kind of sense, we just interviewed everybody else around him to give a portrait of King. In this case, we really mainly interviewed Brian and then a couple people around him and the people like Anthony Ray Hinton, whom he helped free. So really it was the focus on, on Brian. And we went back and forth on how best to sort of introduce people to who this guy was. The fact that he's won the MacArthur all the things that he's done in his life. The filmmaker, part of me, the storyteller, I wanted to put more of that into the film in the beginning. You don't know who this guy is, but you should know who this guy is. And he's one of the great speakers of all time with a lot to tell you. You're going to be three feet away from him for the next hour and a half. And you should count your lucky stars.
1: It's interesting because you use the personal anecdotes, stories, like a spice right. <laughs> to flavor that soup. You were very reticent about it, and I could not help but feel that was also his decision as well. How how did you negotiate that one?
0: Well, yeah, he's a very private guy. But the more we get to talk, and he's a friend of mine now. I'm proud to call him a friend he would open up and, you know, and tell us just amazing stories about his life. And they didn't all make it into the film. I wish, you know, we had more time because I do think, you know, we were trying to do a lot of things in that film, trying to tell the story of from slavery to mass incarceration, the story of the building of this memorial, the story of his legal work, his evolution from a lawyer to storyteller, and his life story. So there wasn't enough time for everything, but as much as we could, trying to sort of anchor... His life stories to to the, the other narratives as well.
1: Anthony Ray Hinton had been on death row for decades, and interviewing him had to have been daunting because he's been through so much, and you're asking a lot of him.
0: Yeah, so Anthony Ray Hinton was prison for 30 years, and um, EJI, Brian's organization.
1: And that's the Equal Justice Initiative. Right, thanks.
0: They are very guarded about him as well. He's been through so much, but he just said, "Hey, come to my come to my house and let's just talk and see how it works out." I show up at his house with our crew, and he's invited his friends over. Being a hospitable Southerner, he's bought about a hundred pounds of ribs and sausages barbecue, and food. Right. It's just amazing stuff, just to host us. It just so it becomes like like one of the best days of my life. So we all talk, and it's sort of all sort of light and beautiful, and Just this amazing moment, and then comes a time when when he and I have to go off to the house, and he's got to tell me his story. And that was hard. So every single time he says it, it's, it's hard. He's as remarkable a man as Brian is. The fact that he's gone through what he's gone through for so long and come out the other side, so positive. Really, he also deserves his own film. He's just completely a force of nature, so giving and so open. And I think he probably there on death row kept a lot of those guys on death row sane through his, just his presence.
1: Well, both King in the Wilderness and True Justice are being distributed by HBO, which for documentary films, it's like Christmas.
0: Well, we've been lucky. I mean, the Cunards have a, have a long-standing relationship with HBO. So HBO are co-producers of the film with, the, with Cunard Films. So that's a great luxury. So we don't have to go to Sundance and hope that someone picks it up. the The film is going to be an HBO f- film.
1: But it also did do the festival circuit because I saw it, I saw the premiere at AFI.
0: Right. So we went to some festivals. And King in the Wilderness actually was at Sundance out of competition because we had we we're lucky to already have distribution.
1: I wonder, especially with um, the Brian Stevenson film, what you've learned about yourself through the making of it?
0: Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I think through interviewing Brian and Anthony Ray Hinton and um, some other accused, some other people that they've helped that didn't make it into the final film, and also his attorneys, like these attorneys working there, uh, it made me think about my work as an artist, thinking about how selfless they've been in their work, in their legal work. I never want to be too didactic in my own, artistic work, but understanding the responsibility they have and sort of shouldering that in some ways and figuring out how I can marry my art with helping this planet right now in such a time of need.
1: Yeah, the thing, I I was so struck, not just by that work that he does and the relentlessness, but the graciousness with which he approaches it.
0: Right. When you talk about him and, and one of his great mentors, Steve Bright, they really talk about it like a uh, priesthood. Their life is helping these people. Brian, he'll work six days a week, and on the seventh day, he will drive to a prison and have a book club with some inmates. It is his 100% his life's work. Not everybody at EGA has to do that, but he does that, and that inspires everybody else to, to really bring their A-game all the time.
1: I'm switching gears a little bit here, but you write novels, you write essays, basically solo work, and you work in film, and stage too, you know, very, very collaborative work. Can you talk about what the challenges and rewards of each are?
0: Yeah, it's funny, even writing in, in film, I live in sweatpants at home in front of my computer. So when I first started to work on a play, this play Fly about the Tuskegee which played actually at at the Ford's Theater in D.C., we had the first stage readings, and the director wanted to change a line from an and to an but. And then he kind of waited. Everybody's waiting. I don't know what they're waiting for. They're waiting for me to okay that. And I realized it's, it's a very different world than the screenwriting world, the Hollywood world that I'd been so much a part of, where, you know, you're... Rarely consulted as a writer. After you, after they take your words, they take it away, and you really have to fight to keep involved. And then working on the documentary world and the physical production of it, and working with these cameras and this amazing crew, the improvisational aspects and the interpersonal aspects were something I really thought were really fun. And then the editing is also very fun because editing is very much like writing. So I wanted to um, do more of that. So when it, when Brian came to us to do the short film, for example, I directed a, a short. Maybe th- 30 years ago but really nothing since then. So it really was exciting for me to to think visually again and to really when you put something on the page and it's easy it's sort of almost easy to say this sounds great on the page and let some director and some actors make it better. But the idea of putting it on the page, communicating that to the actors, communicating that to your entire crew and then Working with your editor to, to make the finished product as close as possible to the, you know, the platonic ideal in your head has been a great challenge. And I just like challenging myself. Uh, writing a musical right now, which I've never done before. The People came to me, it's about writing this musical, and then they, they said, uh, would you also like to write some of the songs, some of the lyrics for the songs? And I said, I'd love to try it. If it doesn't work, we'll get somebody who knows what they're doing to, to do it. But, <laughs> but uh, I, I want to try it because I want to I try that new kind of storytelling it's important for me to be irreplaceable. And I talk about in my class work in teaching screenwriting and storytelling to create irreplaceable characters. And I think it's important for all of us, if we're taking up space on Earth, to be irreplaceable in some kind of way that does what I want to do.
1: I'm curious about teaching and some of the things you try to impart to your students about the stories they want to tell.
0: Right. So I'm a child of academics, so I thought that I would eventually teach, but I thought much later in life. But I've been teaching for a while now and working intimately with 20-somethings about the stories they want to tell has been really super helpful for me in rejuvenating my own life and aesthetics and just expanding my own horizons. So I do get amazing things out of it um, and forcing me to think about my own pedagogy. What, why, why am I writing these stories and what's important about storytelling? Asking people to really dig and expose themselves is tricky, and I think, but I think it's important. I'm asking people to be personal and fearless. Otherwise, they're kind of wasting their time.
1: You wrote an essay a few years ago about your daughter having the world in the palm of her hand with her iPhone and how she really curates her own cultural experiences. And we know the way we consume culture impacts the way culture is produced. And I'm wondering how these changes has impacted your teaching, for example. Film has changed. It's not even film anymore. And the limited series now has as much prestige as a full-length movie, if not more.
0: Right. Everything is changing so quickly. And, you know, again, when I first started and, and when I wrote the Tuskegee Airmen, for example, I wrote it as a feature. And then it, they weren't making it as a feature. And this company called HBO said, I will make it as an HBO film. But it's one of their first HBO films, one of their first prominent ones. And so I didn't really understand that it, at that point how, what a big deal it was going to be. I grew up in a, a world of walls. Television was television. Film was film. Radio was radio. All these storytelling was, was all very segregated. Now, my students, now they don't notice. So if I, when I publish something on the com, they don't notice that it's not in the New Yorker magazine or they're reading everything online. The internet is everything for them. So everything is digital in that way. So I really push them and push myself to think about one of your earlier questions about what form a, a project should take. I'll say to them, we're here at film school and we still, a lot of people want to think, oh, that the the feature film is the sort of the, the lion in the jungle, but maybe not. And maybe the story you're trying to tell doesn't lend itself to be told in two hours. Maybe it's four hours. Maybe it's six hours. Maybe it's eight hours, ten hours. Look at the subject and wring it out. Explore every possible thing of it and then tell me uh, or ask yourself the hard questions of how long it should be.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. The choices and the fact that it's digital... There's a way you just don't have to worry about money the way you used to. And of course, there are people, and I understand completely bemoaning right. that loss of film. And I get that. But, you know, as with everything, it just opens up new possibilities.
0: Right. And now, this, with these means of production, so the cost brought down so much, the um, people can have a story. Maybe it's a really fantastical story, but they think they could make a podcast, for example, a, a fictional podcast about it. And they could they could afford to produce that, and that could be a wonderful thing in and of itself. But it could also be a proof of concept for something bigger. Like I thought, Homecoming, which the TV show with Julia Roberts uh, was a good example of that. I which think had
1: its first life as a podcast. Yes, exactly.
0: Yeah, things are moving very very fast in all ways.
1: What makes a story worth telling? I
0: think you feel it in your heart. I think, well, a I think you should say, "Would I do it for free?" A story worth telling is when you do for free. Then you'll find that it's one that when you wake up or you're going to bed or you're taking a shower, you can't stop thinking about
1: it. And I was going to say what's next for you, but you already told us. So is there anything else that's next for you that you haven't shared?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm working on a a lot of things at the same time. I realized working in Hollywood for so many years, you could spend a lot of time waiting for people to come to you. And you can can lose years of your life, your creative life, not doing other things. So I'm I'm always doing too many things at the same time. Um, So I have a board in my house with about, let's say right now, seven different projects. Uh, One I'm extremely excited about is the story called Downtown, which is a story of Lower East Side in the 1980s, really focusing around Jean-Michel Basquiat and Fab Five Freddy and Debbie Harry. And uh, I worked briefly at the Warhols Factory. When I first got out of college and came to New York, uh, and this explosion of hip-hop and postmodern writing and, and new theater, it just was really exciting. So I'm excited about that project as well.
1: Oh, that sounds fabulous. Trey Ellis, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Both films are wonderful, and thank you for making them.
0: It's been a pleasure. It's really been a true a true pleasure. Thanks.
1: Thank you. That was writer, filmmaker, and teacher Trey Ellis. Trey was the executive producer of King in the Wilderness and True Justice, Brian Stevenson's Fight for Equality. True Justice can be seen on HBO and is also available for screenings through the Coonhart Film Foundation. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. You can subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcasts. So please do. It will make us very happy, and it will make us even happier if you leave us a rating on Apple, because it does help other people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.